Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It made a lot of sense to do what I was doing in my brain. It didn't make sense to anybody else. When I got out there and when I finally was able to, to kind of look and see, it was almost enjoyable to wake up and say, like, I'm going to live a different way. Like, I'm going to live a different way and try and just try and be happy. I wasn't happy for a long time. And when the mental pain, the obsession was gone. And I'm not going to say the mental pain was gone because you're still dealing with a lot of stuff. But the obsession to get high was gone. That was the best, the greatest gift that I got, man. That was it. Once I got that, once I knew, I woke up. And I was like, I wouldn't sell my soul to, to get high. That's when I started to turn the corner, too. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Santino Coranta. Santino is a former U.S. national and MLS soccer star. Santino was drafted by D.C. United when he was just 16 years old and could have been one of the greatest players of all time. His rise to the top was halted quickly by ego, injuries, and his battle with addiction. And Santino hit rock bottom 16 years ago and found recovery, returned to soccer, and reinvented himself. And for the first time, he opens up in depth to share his story on a podcast. So let's get this conversation going. And welcome Santino Coranta to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Santino, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. You got it, man. I, I think a good place for us to start is I'd love to know, like, have you seen the David Beckham documentary? I did. What'd you I think did. of it? Amazing. Yeah. The The coolest part is I didn't know how much kind of flack and the stuff that he went through, Yeah. you know, from the whole country. Pretty amazing story, man. Amazing. Could you relate to a lot of what he went through? I get, I, yes, more so not to that extent, but just emotions and feelings and his wife, uh, the way that he met his wife and the time that he had to spend away from her, similar stories for me and mine. But yeah, it's hard to relate to, to one of the greatest soccer players in the world. And he was a superstar, but he went through a lot of different, a lot of different things, man. I mean, do you ever see like your story? I mean, I know you have a pretty ins- inspiring story, which we'll get into. Do you ever see it becoming like a documentary one day? You know, look, I, at the end of the day, our stories are powerful because we have a platform, right? No different than a firefighter, a police officer, any normal person, but our platform is much bigger. Uh, and people are, I think they, they're more intrigued by failure and, and guys that are successful. And so that's where, you know, if you look at my story, it's, um, sure, it's, it's, I guess, documentary worthy because it intrigues people and, and it helps people too. So let's get into your story. So I know you just celebrated recently 16 years of being sober. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from what I understand, like you were the man back in the day playing soccer, you know, you were drafted in the MLS. At the time, you were the youngest player Mm -hmm. ever drafted, like eighth overall. And then 
not too long after that, you got injured and then like your life slowly fell apart. Mm -hmm. But talk about like life as a kid, because I know that that impacted, I mean, your career, your mental health, like what was life like for you as a young kid? Like, I mean, I know you didn't live the life of a typical adolescent or teenager. Sure. So I grew up in, in East Baltimore. I was always with the older guys. And what I found out <clears throat> really early was I was really good at soccer and it was really easy for me. And it was in something that I enjoyed, I loved, and the older guys kind of took me under their wing. But when you're with older guys a lot, they're doing things that my age guys weren't doing. Right? And so I was watching and having fun and, and just always being around guys from, from the neighborhood that I thought were cool and they were cool, but they were also doing things that uh, weren't so great. Right. And everybody doesn't always make it out of that place. And it wasn't normal. It wasn't a normal upbringing, but I, I thought it was awesome playing in the school a lot and stickball and soccer and being around all the different people that I was around kind of made me grow up a lot faster than, let's say, my own son in this day and age. So, what was your path like to professional soccer? Like you mentioned, you had this, you knew that you were great, that you stood out in the crowd when you were playing soccer. But you also got drafted when you were like a teenager. So like, how does that even, how does that all even happen? I always wanted to be praised and I became addicted to that, mm. right? And so when I knew I was better, I always wanted more, right? And when people were telling me I was great, I wanted to keep going. Even, right? as, even as a kid? Even as a kid. It started from young. So I would hear people telling me how great. And I, I remember doing my first like interview radio interview as a young guy just you know kind of eat baltimore small little radio station and i loved it right and and success and everything that came along with it fed my ego i didn't even know about this back then what that was and that plays along down the line right in our in the story but the pathway for me was it was easy it became easy i knew i was better than everybody else i worked hard i enjoyed it a kid from east baltimore that had a chance to make it out i was kind of pushed and that's how it went where do you think your life would have ended up if you if you didn't pursue soccer? I don't know. A lot of my friends, uh, a lot of the people that I grew up with, some of them are dead. Some of them are just, you know, didn't make it out of the place. Don't really know much where they ended up. Um, so I'm not sure uh, where it would have been. That's a good question. Like when you were a kid and like your life, I mean, I think about your story and, and it, I think there's a lot of correlation between that and these actors who get famous at a young age as well, where they're just inundated with praise, just validation. And, but the, but the other thing is they're just not living a normal life. They don't get to be a kid. They're not, you know, playing outside with their friends. They're not going to the school dances. They're not, you know, spending time doing projects and all these other things. Like when you were a kid, like, were you thinking to yourself, man, I wish I could just live a normal life. Or were you, were you like, so caught up in the thick of soccer that you were like, this is, you know, the end all be all for me. When it started to pass me and when I was seeing other kids or, you know, adolescent 15, 16, 17 year old kids enjoy what I thought was normal, I did want it, right? And when I look back on it, sure, I would have loved to have lived a different life, but I was living a hell of a life and everybody wanted what I had, right? Because I was 15, 16 years old, doing whatever, making lots of money and being told how great I was and living a, a dream of every other young soccer player in this country. So I didn't even think, hey, this isn't normal. I thought that that was normal. Hmm. Crazy as that sounds. When did the demons like start to creep into your life? Look, I always had a personality that if I scored one goal, I wanted to score two. It was never, it was never enough. And I always wanted more. I would say that after the first couple of years in major league soccer, 
the amount of success that I had, I felt like I was inevitable. It, I was there was nobody or anything that could that could tear me down. I was bulletproof. I was an all star in my first year. Was told that I'm going to go to Manchester United. I'm going to do the the highest you can go, and so. At that point, there was no stopping anything. So I started to enjoy certain things outside of that, right? Traveling around and going out with the older guys and experiencing Los Angeles and New York and seeing different ways. That's when it started to become, this is fun, you know, but I could still do both. I was still successful at both. So it was fine. And did you ever feel like this sense of, because you talked about how you had this big ego growing up and, you know, you're the best player coming out of Baltimore, but then you get to the MLS and then you start playing for the national team. Like everybody's kind of, I mean, not, not necessarily on an even playing field, but way more even than it sure. is when you're like a, a star coming out of a, a city like Baltimore. Sure. Did you ever feel like like less than or any kind of like imposter syndrome when you got to the MLS? I felt better than them. I always had a, a great amount of respect for the older guys. And when I went to the MLS at 16, the one thing from growing up where I grew up, I always respected the older guys. And what, what I found was – I was pretty street savvy and I understood the guys that I needed to get in with and I needed the respect and I needed to help me along. Um, and that's one, one thing that really helped me early on. And, and it's not that I thought that I was scared or anything else, but I was, I was really good at what I did and uh, I was mature physically. So it wasn't like I needed, um, I was there, you know, physically. So the performance, and then when I started to perform, I started gaining respect from the older guys. That's what helped. So you have a lot of success early on in your career at DC United. Then you start, you get hurt. What was it? A year or two later? Like, well, how, how did that impact you? Yeah, I was introducing my first pain pill. And that, that was, I really liked those things, you know? And it wasn't the first time I took it. I wanted to feel like that for the rest of my life. I took them. I had a couple of drinks and it was wonderful, right? It was a wonderful feeling. I didn't wake up the next morning and say, man, I need to eat a handful of these things. It was a progression, right? And the progression wasn't overnight, but it was a progression of it did something to my brain. And again, like I said, I always wanted a little more. I wanted to feel like that again. Maybe it was a Friday night. I wanted to feel like that again the next week. And hey, the next week. But it was a progression. It didn't take long. Because you were still a teenager, right? Yeah. You were like, what, 17, 18 years old at this point? Yes. And at that time, back when, 2002, 2003, 2004, they weren't, that wasn't like the in drug at the time, you know? It started to become more popular. But it was really just prescribed from doctors and uh, it became more prevalent, obviously, a few years down the line when I was obviously having to buy them on the street and everything else. But those things, and then you get introduced to the higher end drugs, right? And then you start to mix them all together and then it becomes a real a concoction that I really liked. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't one of those things where it's every day and I'm losing everything. I was still performing and I'm still able. The injuries were one thing, deal with them, move on. But the injuries, I can use that as an excuse. But that's what that's what kind of you know popped the cork, you know. And how did that all like the injuries? Then you're now experimenting with drugs. You're feeling better about yourself. Like you're changing your brain. How how did that all like impact your your mental health? Given that your identity was soccer and that you thought you were like you know the greatest player in the league. Like how did that all impact everything? I wasn't anymore. Yeah. And so I, my brain was still telling me that it was, but I clearly wasn't, and it was it was having an effect on my body physically. I wasn't at the peak of what I needed to be, whether it was a couple pounds heavier. I just wasn't at the peak going into pre-seasons. I enjoyed the off-seasons a lot more. I took way more time off than I should have. I just wasn't mentally, physically, emotionally doing what a professional athlete should be doing. But again, the talent, the train, that talent train, I rode that, man. 
and I was able to still ride that train. And from what I did the first couple of years in the league, I was able to buy myself time. And when I bought myself time, I still thought, look, there was nothing that was still going to, nobody was going to tell me I was out or I was going to, you know, be out of the league or anything like that. It never crossed my mind. But it started to, it started to, obviously, there was a change. I didn't see it, man, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like something that I saw, hey, I got to get myself together. I just didn't see it. When did those two worlds collide where the, I guess the front you were putting on that because of your early talent and your skill as a soccer player, you know, you were able to like buy yourself a lot of time. Like when did that run out and people really found out that, you know, you just weren't the player that you used to be? Yeah. Obviously my wife now, we, I met Petrina when I was in seventh or eighth grade. We were very young. Um, we weren't married at the time, but she knew um, what was happening and she saw uh, the evolution of what was going on and she was the only one and again she was trying to help trying to help me but there was no there was i didn't listen to anybody anyway my parents went through a divorce when i was young i signed the contract when i was 15 or 16 years old nike everything was i did it so i wasn't going to listen to anybody's advice because i needed to figure it out myself and so those worlds started to collide when it became an everyday thing mm. and i was starting to get the opiates and everything i'm starting to get sick Right. And and then you're figuring out the night before how you figure out the next day. And then the next day becomes it just became something to where DC United had had enough at that point. Right. And I, maybe two, what, would that, what year would that have been? 2006 or so. And that's when it started to become spiral out of control. They like traded you or something to LA? Yeah. Not a great place to go because that, <laughs> that was Los Angeles. Was uh, I told myself, when I got traded, I was going to get my act together, you know, I was going to get my act together in Los Angeles. And then I found out really quickly that they had, I had more access to stuff out there than I did here. Always found the people that wanted to do what I did, not in the teams, but, but outside again, downhill spiral downhill. But the, the irony in the whole thing was everywhere I went, I had a ton of success in LA early on, even I'm taking opiates before games and still scoring goals in this league. Wow. Right? And these are things like, probably normal people are saying what the hell is this but this is that was my reality it didn't knock me out it gave me energy my the only thing is i remember they would track our heart rates and my heart rate would never go really high and our fitness guy would always say man your heart rate's really low you know like how i said i don't know most of the low risk heart rate you know but these are things that would happen i scored a bunch of goals when i first went out there and again it bought me more time you know i kept like i kept getting these I don't know what it was, man. I'm maybe lucky or whatever it was. But I, again, I was a pretty decent player. So looking back on it, it was a blessing and a curse, you know? It really was. So when things got really bad for you in your addiction and you were still playing professional soccer, like what did the day-to-day -day look like for you? You mentioned you were getting high before games. Yeah, like yeah. were you like buying stuff off the street? And yeah. Yeah, there was no doctors. I wasn't going to pain management clinics. There was no doctors. I was eating handfuls of, of opiates, whatever I could get my hand on, Oxys, Percocets, whatever it was. That was it. That was my main... I always thought that eating pills was different than, and I say eating them, <laughs> like that's what we did. They yeah. I didn't take them. I always thought it was different than like heroin or dope, or it was like the rich, like just a tablet, you know? And I always thought that I was different than a guy that was on the street or going to run down in East Baltimore, West Baltimore to get what they needed to get. I don't know. That was, that was a philosophy that I, I like, I, that stuck in my brain, you know, like the guy underneath the bridge. He's different than I am, you know? Yeah. He's a he's a homeless junkie. I'm not that guy. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. As you're recounting and talking about all this and like, you know, I'm sure memories are coming back to you and just, you know, stuff's coming up. Like, what kind of emotions do you feel? I think I'm, I'm at a point and, and initially, 
I enjoy telling my story because the the pain, the mental pain, it helps when you when you talk about this stuff. This is why we go to meetings. This is why we we talk to other people that, that do what we do. The amount of mental pain and suffering was far beyond any sickness or any opioid sickness that I ever dealt with, you know? And it makes me remember how bad it was, right? And now to be able to sit here with you and talk about this stuff is, it makes you feel like you, uh, look, today it's good, you know, today. It's it's a good day. But again, it's not something, the, the one thing that hurts probably the most, and I still have a hard time, is the success that I could have had, mm. right? And I know that this was always going to be, the way that my life was going to pan out. And I accept that now, but it's still hard because I watched the Premier League. I watched these kids that are playing now. I was as good as them. Mm. I was, you know, and I, and that's something I have to accept. It's not, it's not easy. I still think about that every week. I do. That's the only, that's the time I really think about it on the weekends when I watched the Manchester United's play. And, you know, that's when I think about it. Like where do you where would where do you see yourself? Like where could you have been? You think given that would you have been like Messi? Would you have been like Ronaldo? Yeah, those guys are on a different planet. Those two. I think that back then I was rated as one of the top 100 players in the world. Back when in 2001, 2002, I was invited to go play at Manchester United in the off season, <laughs> but I wanted to stay here. I wanted to enjoy my off season. And any normal person that's listening to this is saying like, are you? This is crazy talk right. to say like, who was guiding you or who was telling you? So my agent calls and says, hey, Sant, listen, we have a really good opportunity. Sir Alex Ferguson, he's the coach of Manchester United. He really wants you to come over to Manchester and, and train here. Man, it's good, you know, but I, it's been a long couple of years. I was down in Florida for a couple of years. I just got back then. Like, let me enjoy this off season for a couple of weeks, take some time off. And then we'll, maybe we'll do it later next year. And this is the insanity at the time that my brain was thinking, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's, yeah, I would have been, would have, could have, should have, like if you, yeah. Yeah. I would have been a good, I would have been a lot richer than I am today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would have spent it all though, probably somewhere or another, you know? Was there anything else you regretted in your career? I mean, there was, wasn't there an opportunity where you, you came into camp or something for the World Cup and you were out of shape or something? That's the worst. That's one of the worst things. And again, like these are things that the, that were inevitably going to happen with the brain and that I had at the time. And this was full. I was in addiction. This was I was living in addiction, man. Yeah. And so, in 2005, I played in the game that we qualified against Mexico. We were one year out of the World Cup. Uh, it was in Columbus, and that's when I was I was rolling. I was doing really well. But that's when the, that's when it really started to take a shift because making lots of money lots of bonus money things were great I was living a really good life i played in scotland with the national team like we were preparing for the world cup and that november was the last game in scotland and then the, the camp was in january and bruce arena at the time had said um he was a coach he said hey we have you penciled in as a guy on the right side that is going to be a right winger that can really help us in the world cup i was really excited about that that was a that was the pinnacle of my that would have been a pinnacle and I didn't train and I was, and that was the off season that the pain pills and everything was really heavy. It was really bad and it started really, really heavy. And I went there and the first day that I got there, I was with the fitness guy. That was the end. That first day that I got there, that was the end of the World Cup for me. Hmm. And I had no idea. I really didn't. I had no idea it was going to be the end until... I wasn't dressing in the 18 men roster in that January camp. And I was kind of like forced out. I was done. 
there was no opportunity to say, hey, you got like two weeks to get in shape. Nothing. Done. Done. They looked at that and they they should have. As an ungrateful kid that is not prepared to represent his country at the World Cup. And I get it. Yeah. Right? I get it completely. No normal, I didn't even say normal, no human being that plays this game, if you sat here, would say, if I have an opportunity to go to a World Cup, I'm going to go out of shape. I'm going to go unfit. They would give the right arm to do this, you know. Right. And I didn't because this was the mentality. I could always scrape by with just talent and not work hard enough. And that was that was the living in addiction, man. That's what happens. Yeah. And so, talk about your relationship with your wife because I know she stuck with you through the whole thing. Yeah. But there were some ups and downs. Talk about like, you know, what it was like. You know, the good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah, she's a wonderful person, man. Best friends, and we've been through a lot of stuff. The one thing about the one thing when I met her, what I liked about her was never about me being a soccer player, an athlete, or she never treated me any different. In the end, she was in the end in 2007. She, her, my daughter, they were finished, and they needed to be because they didn't matter to me anymore. You know, getting high was way more important. Um, they were second. Everything else was second. I would have walked if they would have been crying on the floor. I would have stepped over them to walk out the door to get high. It's just the way it was. And in the end, that was the time. That was the first time where we were really, that was kind of, that was, she was finished. And that's what scared me the most, mm -hmm. not losing my job, not, not playing soccer. That was where I really was like, man, like this, this could be, this is it right now. What's next? What, am, what do, I don't have anything, you know? Were you I, still playing? Were you still playing soccer at that mm -hmm. point? Yeah. I, I got traded from LA to New York and then I was running up and down 95, you know, to get what I needed to get. She wasn't in the in the picture too much anymore. She was kind of living in her mom's house with my daughter. And I didn't care about any of it until she kind of said, look, this is, we're done. This is it. Can't, we can't mentally, I can't do this anymore. You know? So that's where we were in the end of it all. And that's where there was two things that there was, I remember the breaking point for me. It was, I was downtown. I was standing, it was from the power plant. It was like at the top of those parking garages. And I was there and I was in like this, I didn't sleep for a couple of days, just partying, you know? And I said, like, it makes more sense for me just to jump off this thing, man. You know? And it really made sense. And I really wanted to do it. I wasn't scared at the time to do it because I was in such a bad place and I was finished with it all. I'm just done. I wanted to be done. And I wanted everybody to see me fall over top of that thing. And that's where my ego took. I wanted people to see me jump off that thing and talk about that, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't know what stopped me from doing that. I really don't. And I remember calling her that night and I said, like, Jay, I need you. Like, I need you to help me. You know what I mean? She picked me up and and that was like the start of going out to treatment and starting the whole process. Mm. Wild, wild, wild time, man. That is wild. Yeah, man. Throughout the course of your career when you were going through all this, I mean, was there any kind of like support? Was there other players going through it that you could reach out to and, and try to relate to or? So it's a lot different now. Mental health, addiction back then. Look, I would know when the drug testers were coming to, to RFK from the people that I knew in the offices or to security guards. And you know how we are. Like We have to figure out, we manipulate every situation. And so when I would see the sign in the list, RFK, or this person's coming in, I'm running back. I got to get out of here because if I fail the drug test, whatever it is, I don't know... The, the the situations nowadays are vastly different and the accessibility to to help is dramatically different we were looked at as really really we were oddballs right right and, uh, he's he's a mess you know so get his i was probably it wasn't many more in the nhl at the time mm -hmm. more help there 
but I didn't. I'm not good at asking help. Asking for help. Yeah. Well, wasn't. So you go to treatment out in what Malibu, right? Really nice place. Yeah. Really nice. Fred Siegel kind of had a. Uh, it was amazing because what the league did for me. I was forever grateful for what they did. And my agent Dan Siegel, who's Wasserman, amazing people. Dan Cronin, who runs the substance abuse, a wonderful guy. They got me on a plane. I called and said, hey, I need help. You know, like I'm really, I don't, I don't know what to do. They got me on a plane that day and I left and I didn't even have time to process it all. Just needed, needed to get there. Amazing place. Amazing people get out there. And I was like a fish out of water a little bit because there was some really, really heavy hitters and really good people that high end people in this country are at this place, but they took care of me. And that was the start of it all. I mean, it seems like a lot of your troubles came from your ego and like your being super arrogant as a kid. Like, how did that get all, how did that all get worked out like during recovery? I realized I wasn't that important. You know, I wasn't that important that I thought I, I thought that I always was different or I was better than, like I said, the, what I found out in recovery was the guy under the bridge, the, the bum, the guy, the junkie. We were, we felt the same. We felt the same, you know, and I never, until I could understand that process and I needed guys that, that did this and I needed people who were in recovery to tell me this. And it hurt to hear, you know, that I was no different than at the time, um, no different than anybody else. And I was like, I know, I'm a little bit better, you know, it slowly <laughs> took time to realize what this was and, and grasp it all. But I did, that was a turning point, I guess. What was it like rebuilding like your identity and like transforming that since your identity was so wrapped up in, mm. in soccer and the fame and being a professional athlete? Like, how did you come to terms with all that to do what you're doing now? I remember because when I went out there, I had a really bad injury when in 2007 at the time. So I could have used that. I could have stayed. I could have pain management. I could have used some of the stuff to keep riding this thing out. And it made sense. It made a lot of sense to keep, to do what I was doing in my brain. It didn't make sense to anybody else. When I got out there and when I finally was able to to kind of look and see, it was almost enjoyable mm. to wake up and say like, I'm gonna live a different way. You know, like I'm yeah. gonna live a different way and try and just try and be happy. I wasn't happy for a long time. And when the mental pain, the obsession was gone, and I'm not gonna say the mental pain was gone because you're still dealing with a lot of stuff, but the obsession to get high was gone. That was the best, the greatest gift that I got, man. Yeah, That was it. Once I got that, once I knew, I woke up and I was like, man, I'm not, I wouldn't sell my soul to, to get high. That's when I started to turn the corner too. Hmm. So what helped you deal with a lot of the, the mental pain? Did you go to therapy? Like yeah. When? Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, the people in these programs, therapists, reading, talking to people who felt like I felt, you know, psychiatrist and just, just understanding that it's fixable. It's fixable or manageable. How about that? Manageable. And then when I started to manage things and understand what it was, I didn't know what it was. How can I, how can I say I need help with something and I don't know what it is? I don't know what depression is. I don't know what anxiety is. I don't know what, I don't know what these things are. I don't even know what really mental pain was, right? Until you start to understand and read and learn about yourself. How can you fix it? What were some of the what were some of the hardest things you had to like unlearn? Like some of the hardest like limiting beliefs when you got into recovery that you had to like move past. It's I was complicating things that were really simple, you know, and I was thinking about external stuff and everything that really didn't it didn't matter, man. 
You know, the things, the things that I was concerned about or weren't, it didn't matter. The smaller things when I started to realize, like, I remember driving one time, like this time of the year and like seeing the leaves, the different colors and stuff. And I was like, I haven't seen this in forever, man. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I was like, that's really pretty, man. That's a pretty, like the leaves, the, my daughter, uh, my wife smiling, these things. That's a big deal. Right. You know, because it was all about. I mean, everything was about me. Right. You know, and then everybody else was secondary. How did you rebuild trust with your wife? It was a process, but I think when you know, when you look in somebody's eyes, they get their act together and yeah. they mean it and yeah. they genuinely mean it. You know, they ask God for help. They ask this, but you also know a bullshitter, you know? Yeah. I think she genuinely knew that I wanted to get myself together. I had the right intentions and I was done. I didn't know where it was going to take me. I didn't know if I was going to be a professional soccer player again. I didn't know what I was going to do. And if I ended up being just a normal, average, whatever it meant, nine to five, I was still going to be a, try to be a good person and good to her, wherever wherever that went, just trying to be a good father, you know. So would you say what helped the most is just making sure that your your actions just aligned with everything you said? That I was present. Yeah, and you're present. You know, and because I almost missed it. That would have been a shame because that would have been missing my daughter, missing – my wife, that would have been a shame. And so we always say, me and a good friend of mine, man, we almost missed this thing, you know, being present, being available for them, taking care of them, not even financially or not. Because I thought that if I could give them houses and cars and money and fame, and I could take them to soccer games and they could travel around the country. Like, what else do you want from me? Right. I'm giving you a life. I'm giving you, I'm giving you a life that you should, that I should be able to do whatever I want. Right. Right. So if I want to walk out, run out, do what I want. You have a good life, but that's not how it goes, you know? And I was able to give them things that I wasn't able to give them for years and years. And I was just being genuine, helpful, there, present, looking in their eyes, being, and not, not having a, an ulterior motive. You talked about that your daughter was also at one point done with you. I mean, I think she's a, well, she's a teenager now and she's in college. That yeah. she like know what was going on back then or she just she just knew just because of your your wife yeah look she's an unbelievable kid we're very fortunate that we were able to to guide her and give her the right guidance i i wouldn't say that we told her a bunch she's smart enough and kids are smart enough to understand when people are upset when their moms are emotionally upset and i was doing something wrong but i always had this this uncanny ability to buy her something to make her laugh, to make her smile, to be the fun dad, to try and fill the void of what I wasn't giving her, mm. what she really needed. But kids and they, you know, you can you can manipulate the the process a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's what I was trying to do. To try and make her still love what I was doing. It's not me, it's your mom or she, I'm not I'm not that bad, you know? Yeah. So And so now that we're in this world where there's a lot of kids that are struggling with mental health and, and with addiction to different substances. Do you have different conversations with, with your kids around this or is this something you're just trying to let them play out on their own? I took her to my, um, I forget what anniversary it was for the first time. I took her to my home group, let her hear my story. And a lot of kids from the different treatment centers will come to my anniversaries just because they find a story, I guess, like a because I lost so much or yeah. sports guy or the soccer guy, they find it intriguing and they stay engaged because sometimes the older guys, they talk and they lose them, you know? So I let her come, told my story, 
you know, and there were some things that I think really opened her eyes and some things scared her and some things like, Hey, that I'm really proud of what you did. Or, um, that was when she really had an understanding and could grasp the, the full magnitude of not only helping people now, but how bad it was, um, prior to, to getting clean. Do you see that drive for validation or success in any of your kids? Yeah, I think that my wife, myself, we have a really good balance of trying to help them understand what's important, what's, you know, they're talented soccer players and they are, they're, they're creating their own pathways, but they also have a really fine, like we try and help them through situations that I didn't have help getting through, Mm. right? The guidance and the, just the advice or letting them fail or succeed and trying to help them through it. And that's what, again, I didn't have that platform or foundation growing up and I didn't want it. Right. So they want it, which is good. They listen, which is good. We just try and provide them, you know, things that not monetarily, but just things that, that can help them kind of deviate and find them what we had. I say we, me. So speaking of sharing your story, I know you talked to the Washington Post. I think it was like shortly after you retired, right? Yeah. Talk about that article. I mean, the headline was like, I should I should have been dead, right? Mm, that was actually still when I was playing. I remember walking into the locker room. I told you this story. I didn't know it was going to be on the front page of the Washington Post. And again, these are situations back then that we talked about not having you know addiction being such a big deal. It's such an intriguing story to people. Right. Um, and it, it really shouldn't be because everybody... It, everybody's dealing with this in some way, shape or form, whether it's family member. But I walked into the locker room that day after doing the article with Stephen Goff. Um, and it was a, it was a couple weeks of like preparing. And on the front page, I look at this and I'm looking at my buddies read the, cause back when it really wasn't as tech savvy as it is now, you know, everybody's on their phones back then they're reading the paper still. And on the front, it says I should have been dead. And I was like, man, I'm definitely now I'm all in, right? I've <laughs> I've told the whole world and now I have to hold myself and stay accountable. And and that helped actually too. That helped because I wasn't have anything to hide anymore. Yeah. Nothing to hide. I mean, as far as like the day to day, like I know one of the things that you regret is stealing from your grandmother. Tough. Like yeah. how did you how did you make amends with that or come to terms with all that? I told <laughs> look, my I have a wonderful family, a close-knit family, but my grandparents, my, if, listen, if I had to hide a body, they would help me do it, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's the type of Italian, that's just the way it is. And so no matter what we did, we always, they always found us a way out, you know? And, but when I, when I, that was the day when I took that money out of her purse, when I took her card and I went and stole money from her. That was a, it hurt, right? And I had to tell her when I got myself together, I said, hey, it wasn't a ton of money, maybe $60 or something like this, but it wouldn't matter if it was $1 right? because I had to go somebody that would do anything for me. And it hurt, man. And I was able to tell her and, and I gave her the money back, you know, she didn't take it, you know, but she laughed and said, I don't, that's not, I'm just glad you have yourself together. And just like any, any mom or dad would say, but I was able to look at her in the eyes and be accountable and not be sneaky. And I'll never forget that though. Sober for 16 years, you've been out of the league for a while as well. Like what was the point where you came to terms with, with everything in your past where you were like, you know what, like it's time to turn the page. Like this sucks. I wish I wouldn't have made these decisions, but it's time to move on from professional soccer. I was physically beat up at the end of, 
I started playing when I was 16, so we're, I was done 27, 28 years old, just physically. I was mentally, physically. I had accomplished a lot when I came back, which made everything that much better. I was able to get back on the national team, was able to represent my country again, was able to work hard and play throughout the course of the season. I was the first one to get there. I was the last one to leave. That All that stuff didn't happen mm. prior to getting myself together. So I won MLS Cup. I was able to win in lots of different things, and I was good with what I had accomplished on the field. And then off the field, when I was done playing, I felt like there was a lot that I still had to give, man. You know, like there was a lot of things that I could not help people with, but just be a, um, a presence with young players or, or kids or family, whatever it was. That's, yeah. that's when I kind of, that 28 years old, that mark, I was ready to be done. So how, what was the process like of coming, coming back to, to soccer? Like, like after you went to rehab? It was the only thing that I knew, hmm. one, Number two, I was still young, right? 23 years old. And and when I started to run on a treadmill a little bit out at the treatment center, I was like, man, this is not so bad. Maybe I'm going to give this a try. And I could run for like five minutes. That's how bad my foot, I was in really bad shape. Five minutes, but it felt so good just to run and like have a clear head and listen to some music. And then the six minutes, five minutes turned into 20 minutes. And then I started to look a little different and feel a little different. And I was like, maybe I give this a shot. I don't know. And I would have played for free. It wasn't about money or, um, and so I started to call those guys that initially helped me early on. And I talked about those older guys that I respected and I called one of the greats that I ever played in this league, Jaime Moreno. I said, Hey, I think I can, I want to try and come back and just in the preseason and just go to training possibly, you know? He's like, Sam, you, know, you did a lot of damage. You know, we have to, this is a big deal. It's still early on. Let me talk to these guys. And so that process kind of started initial conversations, accountability from the league, stipulations, everything that started to happen. And they brought me in. DC United brought you in? Mm-hmm. So when you say damage, I mean, like, I guess, like now, I guess it's just different because there's, there's people who are more outspoken about mental health and addiction. And it's like not seen as this, I mean, super negative thing it's more like all right this person wants to get help they want to better themselves like what was the damage that they had seen you do when i say damage it wasn't necessarily it was it was the selfishness Mm. i was taking money from a a corporation and not giving them what i should have gave them yeah right and so and and that's you're basically you're lying to the league right you're being a a cheat you Mm. know and and that's what i consider damage it wasn't i didn't do anything to players staff didn't have bad relations with anybody right Um, and that's kind of what I mean by the damage, you know. What was your uh, humility like coming back into the league? Like even when you started having some success, what was it all like? Amazing. Way, way different. It wasn't about me anymore, you know, and I appreciated when I got back and uh, the first game that I played and I remember being on the field for the first time and being back in the locker room. I went back in the locker room. I didn't have a tag. It was like a guess. It's like, like trialist basically. Mm-hmm. And that was my locker room, you know. All the reporters were coming around and when I was young and I would have five or six or eight guys and I was an all-star and that was my spot. But I was over the other side with the trialists and it was it was it was a humbling experience, but I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't, you know, I didn't feel like I I was appreciative. That's a big deal for me. You know, being appreciative and being grateful for that opportunity. And I took it and was obsessed with being great hmm. and being a good teammate and becoming a captain and getting back to where I needed to get back to. And they saw my eyes. Like I said, there's no, you can't hide, right? And I was under a microscope 
and I helped them. I helped the team and they helped me. And it was a, a relationship that was mutual and it, was, it turned out to be really good in the end. And so now you've been able to kind of pay it forward in a way, start pipeline. Mm-hmm. And that's a big deal for you. And there's a lot of kids that want to be professional athletes, whether it's soccer, football, lacrosse, basketball, baseball, you name it. Like what's your message to to parents? Like as they're if they're listening to this and they're like because I think a lot of times parents want it more than their kids. Mm-hmm. Like what's your what's your message to them being you've been on both sides of the coin? I see the families that are very supportive that want to support their kids and help them get to a next level. And what that means is they turn them over to good staffing and and let them kind of find their way. And the one thing that I see the most successful players and the most successful families are okay with their kids failing, but being there to support them. Mm. The ones that are not okay with them failing, they run away from the, the situations. If they're not starting, if they're not playing enough, they go to another club, another organization, which is fine. No problem. But what you're doing is you're not allowing your kids to understand what success and failure is, how to deal with adversity. Because we live in a world now, if it, not, if it doesn't work here, then just go there, right? There is no loyalty anymore to clubs or because there's so many options. And the most successful players, I promise you, are the ones that are able to deal with that and the families that are able to see it and be supportive and not always like it. They don't have to love it, but you have to get through these, these situations. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, but some of the, I mean, I think like some of these parents, I mean, some of these situations, the kids are teenagers, they're young, and I think the parents probably see it as their responsibility to almost like step in. And I think a lot of times there's just miscommunication or misunderstanding of what's really going on. Like, like you've dealt with, I'm sure, a lot of parents, and again, you've you've also been the, the phenom player. Like, what do you think is the if a kid is having a hard time in a sport and they're wanting to be better and not getting enough playing time, like, what do you think is the, the the right approach there? To be completely honest with the families. And so the, my role and my job is to be, is to manage players, right? And they call them coach, but I think coaching is really, really about managing players and managing egos. And because a lot of good players have big egos because they are the best players. But kids that aren't good enough to become a pro or aren't good enough to go to a Division One school, you have to be, you have to be honest with these people. Yeah. Some of them don't want to hear that, but there, there is a reality of what talent, what, what's needed. And God-given ability or some have it and some just don't, right? And no matter how hard they work, there's a level and a ceiling that they're going to get to. And if you can be honest with those people, I think they appreciate it. But some just don't want to hear it. Switching gears for a second, like what was the hardest thing to recover from? Like what was harder to like let go of and heal from? Like the all the, the influx of fame and validation that you were getting as a kid and throughout your career or just not using the, the drugs anymore? The drugs were, were not the issue. Once it stopped, they were just, a, they helped actually. As crazy as that sounds, they were, a, they helped negate all the emotions and feelings and all the things that I had to realize what was wrong. And I didn't know what was wrong. What was wrong? I had voids and emotions and feelings that I didn't know how to deal with. Right. And what it, what voids, what emotions? You know, just like I just said, failure, mm. adversity, hard work, being given a lot and not being willing to, suffer to earn it and these are things that again talent that train is nice to ride but there's an off-ramp for that one too and in the end i wasn't willing and i didn't have the the foundation to to deal with those at 16 years old i didn't i mean i didn't have the my mom and dad were the gray people did the best they could but it was a broken household three brothers it was broken i didn't want to hear any of that stuff so when i when i dealt with adversity when i dealt with failure 
And when I was introduced to drugs, it took a lot of those emotions and feelings away. I didn't mm -hmm. want to deal with it anyway. And it helped because I forgot about a lot of it. And then you just live in a world where you're never dealing with it. Right. right. Not the world that I was in because I was in such a fog. Hmm. It wasn't, I didn't want to deal with it. Right. It's a scary place. How, how do you deal with all that? Like today, obviously you're, you're in a much better space, but does it, that stuff still creep up on you? Of course you have to have tools. This is why we guys like you and I talk. This is, this is the reason we bounce stuff off and how do you deal with this and the programs that are set in place and what we did early on to create a foundation to have the tools to deal with some of the stuff that's going to pop up now. Cause I'm not dealing with, I'm dealing with real life stuff that when you have success, how do you deal with finances and, and houses and, and can you, can you still maintain some sort of, it's a different type of maturity you have to deal with. Right. And so failure now is much different than failure when you're playing on a soccer field, right? Making wrong decisions, doing something wrong or putting a, let's just say a press release out that doesn't go well or whatever it may be and taking the flack for it. How do you respond? Do you run and grab a drink? Cause that would solve the problem or do you face it just like you had to face the stuff when I was playing. So it's all the same sort of things, just different, different things to deal with. So what helps you face it? Let's just say somebody, like let's just say a parent sends you a really nasty email. And it's like, you know what? I'm pulling my entire family out of the league. Like they say some harsh things about you. You're upset. You're angry, whatever. Like, what do you go do? My first thought is always wrong. Hmm. It just is, it's usually is wrong. <laughs> I have the ability to now let this tape play out a little bit. I have the ability to talk to different people about, you know, how to handle it. My wife is a big help. She is, <laughs> she's a big help to a lot of my partners, a big help. But again, people in recovery are a big help, right? And that's, we, we just are, we think different. We act different when things go wrong. Mm. You know, I'm an asshole and I can be that. But at the end of the day, when that's, that's one of the bigger things that I deal with, the, what you just said, mm. you know, dealing with people, because as hard as you work, you want validation and you feel like you're given a product that is the best. And when you hear that, it hurts. And mm -hmm. so you want to say, no, go then, get out of here. But that's not the way to handle it, you know, and let it play through and you handle it the right way and you hope that there's a good outcome in the end. Obviously, you and I connected at the gym. Mm -hmm. What role has like working out and fitness played in all of this for you? Just so good mentally. My wife and I go, it's a good, it's a good, I don't even want to call it an escape, but it's, it's nice just mentally to, to work out to still have some some normality i like routine is good and it's just it's i didn't i in the beginning i wasn't so fixated on being as fit as i possibly could when i was playing and when i came back when i got sober in 2007 i did do that i was completely obsessed with having the best possible body and playing as many games and minutes that i could and that meant the nutrition, the sleeping, the, the everything that I did changed. Super, everything changed. I, there's, I'm not there like I was when I was obviously playing because I don't need to. I just enjoy just working out. Yeah. What was it like playing with David Beckham? It was cool, man. He was, and watching the documentary, he was a tough player. Really soft-spoken guy. If you watch the documentary, great human being. But he was tough on the field and his tackles and what he he was a tough guy. Mm. And we butt heads a little bit, you know. At the, when I played at DC and, and he played at LA, we did. <laughs> some of the some of the pictures and photos that you see were like arguing a little bit, but in the end, we trade jerseys after a game, and I gave it to my son. Hmm. And I think that this documentary helped him understand how big he really was. Yeah, my son's fourteen years old. He doesn't really, you know, he doesn't really understand what he was. He was the Ronaldo. He was the Messi of his era. Right, global superstar. But he was a hell of a player.
Were you guys both in your prime at that time? He was he was a little bit older. I would say he was in his prime probably at Manchester United and Real Madrid when he came here. He was towards the end of his career, but the quality and all the wives like seeing him after the game too, you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go, hey, you gotta go to Tomo. Well, you gotta go to can't wait for this guy. Take him. He's too good looking, too handsome. Is he like the most famous or the best soccer player that you've ever played with? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. probably. I played in some big games internationally and I played against Real Madrid and AC Milan and Chelsea and some big players. But what he did for the game and the sport, it transcended in Asia and everywhere in the world. He was a global superstar. What's next for you? Like you, you I enjoy where I'm at. I still like to compete. We have some wonderful youth teams that compete around the country. One of our teams won a national championship last year that I coach. I still get stimulated from the competition. That'll never change. It's in my gut. So I enjoy helping players progress. What's next for me? I'm not too sure down the line predicting what it's going to be, whether it's coaching, whether it's, I don't know, but I'm enjoying what I'm doing today. That's awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on here, man, being so vulnerable, sharing your story. It means a lot. And I think that my audience is really going to enjoy it. Of course, man. Yeah, I appreciate you having me, bro. You got it.